Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment, that show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And today, we are not only bringing you down to the microscopic level, we are bringing you through time. Today, we are talking about the brief history of all of microbiology. A history that spans more than 3.5 billion years, but we'll try to just give you the highlights today. So, enjoy this little story through history. And now, let's begin with the history of microbes starting long before man. Imagine the world 4 billion years ago. Volcanoes are violently erupting, they're spewing gases and solids throughout the land. It was inhospitable, even for our extremophile friends. Yet, a change began to occur. From the volcanoes and the turmoil arose an atmosphere. Hydrogen sulfide, methane, and carbon dioxide filled the air. The earth began to cool, and the oceans began to fill. And this is where our story truly begins. The record of microbes' history is hard to track, but we believe life first emerged some 3.8 to 4.3 billion years ago. This is how old some stromatolites are. They are also known as living rocks, and they can be found in Australia and Greenland. Stromatolites were formed mainly from a microbe known as cyanobacteria. For the next few billion years, they would slowly make oxygen, killing themselves because they were anaerobes. This was a cyclical event of death, drop in oxygen, rebirth, and an increase in oxygen. You can see evidence of this in banded iron formations in rocks. As the environment continued to change, so did the life forms. Some extremophiles, which detest oxygen, found other places to hide as the oxygen concentration continued to grow on Earth. Anaerobes scurried to remote lands of Earth, seeking solitude in few places that still resemble the comfort of their home, like the extreme heat of hydrothermal vents or the oxygen-free depths such as in the Black Sea of today. Others adapted and thrived in this new oxygen-rich environment. Okay, so we're going to fast forward a few billion years and bring us up to more of a present time where humans exist. So microbes are ruling the world. But as oxygen began to rise and the atmosphere changed, this also allowed for new species to come about with new capabilities. Eventually, we had eukaryotes, which are cells that have a nucleus like you and I. All of our cells have a nucleus. We are eukaryotes, whereas bacteria are prokaryotes. They have no nucleus. Eukaryotic cells are 10 to 100 times bigger than the previously seen, and they start to organize their DNA differently. Some microbes even join forces with the eukaryotes, such as chloroplasts and mitochondria. So chloroplasts, as many people know, are kind of what does the photosynthesis for plants. These originated as single-cell bacteria. And mitochondria, as you may remember from biology class, is the powerhouse of the cell. This is where we get a lot of our own energy. So these pairings of bacterial and eukaryotic cells allow for the rise of many of much of the diversity that we see today and allowed us to have the diversity in fungal, plants, and animals that we see all over. So we're going to fast forward where plants moved from the sea to land, followed by animals almost 300 million years later. And then 50 million years ago, the mammal called a bat learned to fly. Two million years ago, the first human emerged. Told you we were going to fly through history here. So you see, my friends, no matter whose history you look at, microbes lie at the beginning of every story. 
and I'm fairly certain they'll be there at the end too. Let's talk about the first known interactions between us and seeing the unseen world of our microbial friends. For a while, we would give the name God or miasma to everything unexplainable for the things microbes were responsible for, but never created. But in 1665, the veil of secrecy would be ripped off and microbial presence would become of great interest to us. Robert Hooke published his book, Micrographia, describing tiny things, but it was a Dutch cloth trader that became known as one of the fathers of microbiology, Antone van Leeuwenhoek. He made over 500 microscopes, clearly curious and captivated the microbes' existence. Now we could probably dedicate a whole podcast to the microscope, and maybe we will someday, as well as the fundamental technologies that allow us to see into the microbial world, one of which, of course, is auger. In the beginning days, auger was actually just potato slices. I like to think of auger as microbial hotels or us cooking for our microbial friends. We are creating a substance for them to feed on, to grow, to live. And it's almost like a resort to them. So as I said, in the early days, this was potato slices, but this actually is not a great source of nutrients for a lot of microbes. So they tried sugary gelatins and broths, which can be delicious, yet very unstable. Gelatin on a hot day quickly becomes a messy puddle, uh, a messy sticky puddle at that. It was in 1881 that Angelina Fanny Hess, a microbiologist and a cook, added auger auger to meals. And I believe she actually got this idea from some friends who recently visited India. Nowadays, there is an auger for many microbes, but not all. There are still thousands of microbes, perhaps even millions of different kinds of microbes we are unable to culture on auger. Okay, so now we are at the point in history when we know microbiology exists, and it becomes a fascination to many people, mainly because they were able to connect microbes with diseases. John, do you want to tell us a little bit about some fathers of microbiology? Sure. Let's start with the father of epidemiology, John Snow. So at the time, cholera was unleashing a deadly attack in London during the 19th century. So that is our cholera call out for this podcast, since we always have one. Always got to have one. John Snow had enough of this pandemic and was determined to disprove the theory of miasma or that disease was caused by bad air. He was able to trace cholera to the water supply. Eventually, he gained enough support to remove the handle of the cholera-infused pump. Deaths began to decline, but this did not deter cholera. It came back several months later, but Jon Snow fought back, demonstrating that water was coming from polluted parts of the nearby river and was causing the disease while water coming from cleaner waters had far fewer cases of the infection. Due to his detective work, Snow inadvertently started the study of epidemiology. And what was his detective work called again? They call it shoe leather epidemiology because he was walking around to all the different places that he would wear out his shoes. Right. And we have another podcast all dedicated to Jon Snow, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about him. The next person we have is also regarded as a father of microbiology. So I was confused. There's so many fathers of microbiology, but like you only have one father. I guess sometimes you could have two fathers, but there's like four. I think you need to 
think of it more as like a Mount Rushmore of presidents, but a Mount Rushmore of microbiologists. But people hate Mount Rushmore. I was thinking in the theoretical sense, not in the literal sense. Okay, sure. So the next up, we have the great Louis Pasteur, who probably goes down as one of the most famous, the greatest scientists of all time, I think we can say, up there with uh, Newton and Galileo, whatever other scientists people have in their psyches. Yeah, he did so many things. But I mean, you think about it, you hear pasteurization, that's everywhere. So his name is forever engraved in history. Very true. And he did so much in the frame of microbiology. So he was another 19th century chemist and microbiologist who both promoted the positive attributes of fermentation and the negative impacts of microbes. So as John said, he developed the process of pasteurization, which is... It's when you heat up something for to a really high temperature for a period of time and it kills off all the microbes in there. Yeah, and so originally he was trying to get the wine industry to do this, to do this process of pasteurization in order for them to have, to combat their their spoilage issue. But the winos were like, "Mm, nope. So he went over to the cows and the farmers and were like, what if we pasteurize this? And they're like, "Mm, okay. And that's why we can have milk in the grocery stores today. Right. So he also, his other big contribution to the world of microbiology is promoting this idea of germ theory. So germ theory today seems pretty simple, but like we said, back in the day, they thought bad air or God was punishing you. They didn't never were able to link the microbial world to diseases. This is exactly what germ theory was. It was a work of Louis Pasteur, Robert Koch, and Joseph Lister, that really brought this theory to the forefront of our society. I mean, personally, I hate the word germ or bug to describe our microbial friends. I think it's pretty degrading, but this was a pretty important theory to be popularized in our history. So you kind of touched upon it, but let's talk about the final father, Robert Koch. Koch wanted to definitively prove that bacillus anthrax was the cause of anthrax. He put on some gloves trudged out to the farm, found some dead farm animals, cut them open, and collected two samples from the spleen. One was the anthrax bacilli, and the other was pure blood. He placed these samples on some homemade inoculating loops he devised from slivers of wood and stabbed them into mice. Unfortunately, I should say, because I don't think testing on animals is very good, but to his delight, the mice inoculated with blood did not die while the mice with the bacillus species perished in the same way the farm animals did. Mice, guinea pigs, rabbits, dogs, frogs, birds, and many other animals and microbes suffered in his quest to define what is now known as Koch's postulates. Yeah, he clearly had no problems testing on animals. So let's talk about Koch's postulates. This is a four-part gold standard when it comes to identifying microbes as disease agents. First, every case of the disease has to have an agent present. Second, the agent must be isolated. Third, the agent must be placed in a healthy individual and cause disease. And finally, the agent has to be isolated from the new host. So Koch's postulates is the gold standard. It's still used today and is still one of the fundamentals that we learn about in our basic microbiology classes. In today's standards, while we move into more of a molecular microbiology setting, we do still hold Koch's postulates as a way to link 
disease agents to specific diseases. But for now, we will leave Koch's postulates and the fathers of microbiology behind and move into some of the patriarchs of probiotics. So there are actually a lot of situations throughout history where people were promoting probiotics for prescriptions for people to aid in certain ailments. These examples of probiotics being used in history can be traced as far back as Egyptians, where you can see in their hieroglyphs that they valued fermented foods. In the 5th century, there is also Solomon the Magnificent, who was around in between 1494 and 1566. He prescribed yogurt to Francis I of France for his severe diarrhea. And then the final one I want to just highlight real quickly is Menorah Sharuta, who in 1935 would be the first to commercialize probiotic drinks with his product, Yokult, which you can still find in grocery stores today. So he was a Japanese microbiologist who was able to isolate Lactobacillus casei and named it strains Shirota after himself. And this is still something that people are drinking today. And if you haven't had it, I would definitely try it. It's like a little yogurt drink and they have them in different flavors now as well. Sort of like a kefir. Next up, who we're going to talk about is Eli Metchenkoff. He is known as the father of probiotics. And I think he's got a B-Day coming up, so we'll probably do a whole bio on him soon if you're interested in learning more about his life. But he was the first person to champion microbes as medicine, while most others feared and vilified them. If you can believe it, during Eli's time, some people were even trying to sterilize their colons, which is where you have trillions of microbes living, digesting your food, helping you to cycle your nutrients, and keeping you healthy in a lot of ways. So sterilizing your colon, not a great choice. So Meshenkoff, on the other hand, was prescribing sour milk produced by certain lactic bacteria. So most probiotic bacteria are what we call lactic acid bacteria. So and I think like every day up until his death, he would have some sour milk because uh, he really, really believed in the benefits of this probiotic. He published a book in 1907 known as The Prolongation of Life, and he touted that the Bulgarian peasants who regularly consumed yogurt seemed to live longer and healthier lives. So now we call him the father of probiotics. Well, today, probiotics is still much discussion in the world of microbiology. Uh, I think we can all agree a little bit of yogurt now and then is kind of tasty. I mean, let's be honest, I have yogurt maybe five days out of the week. Love yogurt. <laughs> now we're going to bounce over to Sergei Winogrodsky. He was a Russian microbiologist and was highly devoted to environmental microbiology. He promoted the idea of chemosynthesis, which is the idea that many of us get energy from chemical reactions like thermovents. In 1888, he also promoted the value of nitrogen-fixing bacteria in soil. He was a great supporter and some say the father of microbial ecology. No doubt his work laid the groundwork for bioinoculants, which use beneficial microbes to help plant growth in agriculture. By 1896, rhizobia was promoted as a beneficial microbe 
and gained the prize of first patent for a bioinoculant. Since then, many researchers searched the depths of microbial life to discover natural microbial remedies to diseases and stresses of crops. Like me, that's what I do. All right, so we'll move into kind of the 20th century of microbiology now, a time that I call the dark ages of microbiology for the microbes, but the old golden age for microbiology for us. In 1928, we learned how to mechanize microbes. Well, Alexander Fleming did, mostly accidentally, when he observed penicillium could inhibit growth of certain bacteria. This is for show a future episode because we have like seven blog posts on it and I've probably put in so many hours of research into it. I truly got obsessed with it last summer. So it's definitely something that we're going to talk about because there's just so many accidents that happened that brought us to penicillin, which is probably one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the modern age. It's saved countless lives, all due to a number of accidental discoveries. But that's for another time. I'll just give you the highlights. It would take some time and several coincidences before Flory, Chain, Heatley, and Moldy Mary figured out how to mechanize microbial products so that we could get ahead of a lot of our diseases. And they shared it with everyone, which is great. Well, they actually didn't share it with the Nazis, which is another interesting story that we'll get to, I'm sure, in the future. The next antibiotic that was discovered was streptomycin, and this was discovered in the Waxman lab, and this has a lot of controversy around it as well, as Elizabeth Boogie and Albert Albert Schatz were also part of this discovery, although Elizabeth's name was left off the patent because she was told that as a woman, having your name on a patent is just not necessary and you don't want that because you're just going to lose it when you get married and you change your name because you don't have an identity once you get married and change your name to whatever husband you decide you want to marry. Lame. So this was discovered in 1943. Different times, I suppose. So streptomycin was used against many microbes, including some of the most prominent killers in the microbial world, mycobacterium tuberculosis, which causes consumption. We have salmonella serotype typhi and bacillus brucellosis, which is something that they think is what killed Florence Nightingale. But prior to vaccines, people were still developing ways to protect themselves from the microbial world. This is a process known as virulation. And this procedure, they would take the pus from one diseased person and rub it into a small cut of a healthy person. In this way, you would, prov- you would supply the healthy person with a small inoculum of the pathogen in hopes that their immune system will defend itself against that small inoculum. However, this is not a great method because you really cannot determine how much of the pathogen you are injecting into the healthy person. Yeah, unfortunately, it gave immunity to a bunch of people, but there are people that did get the disease and succumb to it. So it wasn't the perfect remedy. Yeah, vaccines are a lot more safe than this previous process of virulation, but you can kind of see how the history and the progressing came about. So the first probably Western person that really championed this process was an English aristocrat known as Lady Montague. She would virulate her children, which sounds weird, 
uh, bring it to the forefront, a Western society. And we also have a, uh, another podcast where we talk about Onsimus, who is a black slave in Puritan Boston, and then helped to popularize this idea of urulation, which ultimately may have, I mean, we don't really know how much it did help, but it, the small bro- smallpox outbreak of colonial Boston may have been stopped because of this idea of urulation. It would be Edward Jenner, who has another birthday coming up, I believe, in May. So uh, look out for his birthday. And he would be the first person to vaccinate someone, which um, I think has a lot of ethical issues, but it also kind of changed the history of vaccinations to where we are today. So he gave an eight-year-old cowpox, which is similar to smallpox, And then he tried to give the boy smallpox, but it did not develop the disease. This was kind of like the first example of vaccines. And I believe the eight-year-old boy was also like his gardener's son. So it was like someone he, it was a power dynamic that was probably not very fair for the eight-year-old boy. Vaccines today, as we all know, have a huge source of controversy with them due to some fallacies in the research paper by he who shall not be named because he doesn't deserve a name. So in the 20th century, we had a number of vaccines that came up, and this is where we can start adding some mothers of microbiology, although I don't think anyone calls them that, but I would definitely put Margaret Jane Pittman as a mother of microbiology, as well as Esther Ledenberg, although she didn't work on, well, she sort of worked on vaccines. And then Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldering are a couple other mothers of microbiology who were influential in the creation of the pertussis vaccine. And then, of course, we cannot stop a vaccine segment without talking about Jonas Salk, who became the hero of the polio vaccine. And like they had parades for Jonas Salk when he had the polio vaccine come out. Parades. Like, that's huge. When was the last time there was a parade for science? I can't remember one. There's been a protest for science, but not a parade. And he was so popular that there is the Salk Institute in San Diego that was named after him. All right. So we're moving into the mid 20th century where we finally discovered DNA. And by we, I mean Rosalind Franklin, Francis Crick, and James Watson, who discovered DNA in 1953. And then, of course, there is my girl, Esther Ledenberg, who's probably one of my favorite female microbiologists because she did like everything. And I believe we have a podcast on her describing all the things that she did. But she played a key role in pioneering microbial genetics and biotechnology. She discovered both the lambda phage and the F plasmid, which are still major tools today for microbial genetics. In 1970s, Frederick Sanger would develop a method of sequencing DNA. The first sequence genome was a bacteriophage or a virus for bacteria. The virus was called X174. Carl Woese was really a champion and promoter of microbial diversity. Through his work looking at differences and similarities of a single gene called 16S, Carl Woese was at last acknowledged as the microbial world was quite diverse, consisting of all three elements of the domain of life, eukaryotic with a nucleus, prokaryotic without a nucleus, and archaea. In 1960s, chloroplast and mitochondria would finally get their story told by Lynn Margolis. She popularized the idea of endosymbiosis, stating in her 1967 paper, quote, three fundamental organelles, the mitochondria, the photosynthetic plastids, 
and the nine plus two basal bodies of flagella were once themselves free-living prokaryotic cells. She showed the value of symbiosis to the world. Carrie Mullis brought the microbial world a little bit closer when he invented polymerase chain reaction or PCR in 1985. This is where we can sequence or tell what the DNA is using enzyme that was found in a bacteria called Thermus aquatics. We call this TAC. Um, so this is the enzyme that is going to amplify a lot of our DNA. And then we can tell presence or absence of a certain gene based on primer sequences that we get from the gene itself. So this is a process, again, that we're still using in labs every single day. And it's a great diagnostic tool and able to tell us whether or not a micro belongs to a certain species or family or has a certain toxin in it. Um, so we use it for all sorts of things. So this kind of leads us into the age of omics, which is where we are today, where basically we just love to sequence everything. And there's a number of different omics, which we will not get into too much here. Uh, but a lot of this was actually popularized by the microbiome movement, which I hope everyone is familiar with. So this is the idea of sequencing all the microbes in the environment. And of course, the most fundamental one is the human microbiome. So this is what has been researched the most. And we owe a lot of this to Jeff Gordon and Rob Knight, who are probably the fathers of the microbiome movement, since we're naming everyone a father in this episode. So this kind of extends the idea of Sanger sequencing, where we could only, in Sanger sequencing, you can only sequence one gene. When we're doing microbiome, we can analyze all of the genes of all the genomes in a sample. And this is huge. Now we don't have to be able to culture microbes. We don't have to have the auger that's specified to their nutrition, nutritional content. We're able to understand far more how dynamic and how intricate these re relationships are between bacteria and fungal and viruses and their macro hosts, such as ourselves, the plants, the oceans. We are far from understanding everything that happens in microbial environment, but we are off to a great start. And I think this is like one of the most fascinating pieces of science that you can get into right now. And I'm not at all biased, I would say. No, bioinformatician being biased? Never. Never. Well, my micro friends, that's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed our whirlwind tour of the past 3.5 billion years of history in about 30 minutes or so. So whether or not you're asleep now or that you have a microbiology test coming up or you're just super interested in science and history, we hope this was helpful educational, and enjoyable. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and subscribe wherever you're listening. And we'll see you next week for a little treat. Next week's interview is with Giant Microbes' Andrew Klein. Giant Microbe is a company that makes plushies of microbes a million times the actual size. They're so fun and cute, guys. If you don't have one, I would definitely check it out. And they just came out with a new product, the COVID vaccine. And this is pretty cool. I think this is probably the first vaccine ever turned into a plush toy. Yep. I'm going to say it's probably the first vaccine ever turned into a plush toy, but it's great. And they have little keychains. So if you're interested in that, I would definitely check out next week's episode because we may have a little treat for you. So we hope to see you next week. Until then, feed your mind, feed your guts, and make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.